This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Welcome to Going in Circles Live. This is our 79th show of the year, and it's uh, our last show of the wonderful year of 2020. It's been, uh, well, we don't have to go into 2020. Everybody knows how bad it sucks. But the one thing that came out of 2020 was that uh, we started a podcast, and this is the, as I said before, 79th show that we've had on since uh, our first show, which was on June 7th. So that's a lot of, uh, it's a lot more than I thought we were going to do. And, and originally I wasn't sure where we were going to go with this, how how many shows we would have, what kind of format we would have. It was just kind of a feeling out process. And the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic and there wasn't a whole hell of a lot else to do kind of probably uh, um, it probably kind of made this happen because I don't know, had there not been a pandemic, that I would have gone ahead and done it. But we did and it's growing and it's getting bigger and it's getting better and it's taken me a while to to uh, iron out a lot of the kinks, and we still have a long ways to go, especially on the shows that Casey's not involved with because he's a producer and he's a professional and I'm a schmuck and I don't really hardly know anything about doing it. So when I do the shows without him, uh, I, I've uh, 100% honest, I've deleted <laughs> segments, I've um, screwed up, I've lost some things. I'm not sure where they are. They're in the internet. There's some couple uh a couple of uh segments that disappeared but um all in all I, I really um I'm happy with the way things are going and, and I really wanna express my appreciation for everyone that's listened um every person that's taken time out of their day to come on with me and, and talk about horse racing and uh, express their opinions, uh, tell their stories, things like that. And uh, it was, it's been, uh, it's been really um, eye-opening, and I've learned a lot. And uh, I, I do also want to want to uh, thank Casey, who's been a lifesaver for me and and helped me out a lot. And uh, it's Hello. it's. Um, How are you? The fire department's here. I hope we're not on fire. But um, yeah, I really want to tell everybody that that uh, I really appreciate it way more than um, I can express. Um, we've had uh, over ten thousand people download our podcast, and the fact of the matter is that um, you know we we not going in circles is not associated with an ADW pumping money into this or, or, you know, with a long list of, uh, of customers. We're not associated with a racetrack. We're basically independent. Um, and it gives us a little bit of freedom, but it also makes it a little more difficult in that, uh, we don't have a budget basically. <laughs> so 
everything we do is um, is unencumbered by bias other than our own. <laughs> I wanted to thank Barry Spears, who's given me a, a tremendous amount of his time uh, on Monday nights as a co-host uh, on the Big Monday Show, which has uh, got a pretty loyal group of followers. And um, Jason Bidas has also been on uh, numerous shows. He's always willing to come on and and uh, in in uh, his experience and uh, professionalism in, in the business is, is a, a big plus for us. Today we we're only, we're only having an hour show. It's, um, it's going to be uh, you know it, it, this is this is the season finale, and I have on a guy who. Virtually no one outside of horse racing or the film business has ever heard of, but in the business, he's relatively infamous. That's Garlic Rob Whitlock. And one of the first things I said on the initial podcast, uh, or even uh, I think on our the preview, was that I wanted to introduce interesting people that are involved in racing that... You're not going to see on TVG. You're not going to see interviewed by uh, the host of a racetrack. Um, there's a lot of really interesting people with intriguing stories and in the, involved in horse racing. Um, and Garlic Rob is certainly one, a person that has a lot of uh, a unique background. How he got into the business, how I how we met. Uh, you'll find out. Things that you can do with garlic that don't associate, uh, or excuse me, that aren't associated with uh, vampires or pizza. Um, he's been a jock agent. He's done a lot of different things, but we're having him on today to kind of uh, round out the year and, and you know spotlight a guy that's uh, just been around for a while and he's seen a lot of things and he's got a lot of great stories and, and we'll have him in uh, in about five minutes. Um, Last night on Going in Circles Live, we did a long show, and the basis was, where are we going with this business? And I know we've talked about this quite a bit, but it's, the the trigger was, was the, the Malibu, and it wasn't, and I've tried to say this to, to many people, because I put a post on Twitter, and it got a lot of play, and and virtually everyone was kind of, you know, could understand where I was coming from. But it's really about, um, not not about that particular race, those particular connections, anything. It's not pointing a finger at, at, at all. It's just the general uh, disenchantment sometimes, I guess would be the best word. Or in this case, I just wasn't excited about seeing a, a really good horse um, put on a, a really good performance. And it bothered me. It bothered me that that I didn't get excited over it. I was more skeptical about it. And it wasn't like, oh, geez, you know, I think he's done this or done that. But the circumstances, the maybe the, the, the year, the way things have gone, the way racing has gone, I, I, I get tired of hearing about how you know this federal legislation is going to going to help. It's going to hurt. It's not going to help. It's a big joke, and, and I, I you know we'll get into it a million times probably before it's actually enacted. But I think the 
the hope that this business is predicated on and and that's really one of the big things that 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 we need to um you know remember in that horse racing is not the stock market and yes people invest a lot of money gambling in they bet invest a lot of money um on horses buying them but this isn't the stock market nobody roots for their stocks nobody goes and feeds a carrot to their stocks nobody i mean i guess guys you know make scores and, and stuff but there's very few stocks that you buy a three hundred dollar ticket on of three hundred dollars three hundred dollars worth of shares that, that you can walk away with fifty eighty hundred two hundred five hundred thousand that you can do here and the hope is something that you're not going to get from a, a federal panel of um, you know, stiff shirt people who are going to you know take care of our regulation you're going to get hope from them we get hope from the horses we get hope from the great stories we get hope from people we get hope from seeing um, what we perceive as greatness and this day and age it's almost uh, that word greatness is it's almost um, a packaged thing and everyone wants to think that they're seeing something that no one's ever seen before. And in some cases they are. But it might not be what you call the greatest. Because the context of great is, is just, it's kind of skewed. And, and horse racing especially. And we talked <laughs> briefly about the Hall of Fame and and the standard of a horse nowadays versus a horse 20 years ago versus a horse 50 years ago. And sure, things change, but how do you change the standard when the standard is it's a nebulous thing to start with? It's not as though it, there's a rule that says, okay, you need X amount of this and you need uh, three classic wins and you need two Eclipse Awards and you need... It. No, it, it's kind of the beauty in the eye of the beholder, but how low do we lower our standards? And that's the thing uh, with the charlatan. My first thought wasn't, wow, that horse was tremendous. My first thought was, wow, I wonder when we'll see him next. You know, next March... Maybe he comes up with a little soft tissue injury. <laughs> Someone put that on Twitter. Soft tissue injury upcoming. <laughs> Honestly, there is some funny stuff on Twitter. <laughs> there really is. Sometimes people take it a little bit too seriously, but man, there there are some really funny people. <laughs> but it's it's true. It's true. And someone wanted to, a person who I don't know, but they I guess we conversate on, on Twitter a little, quite a bit and so, you know, what about Spectacular Bit? What about Spectacular Bit? It was 40 years ago. I was, I was in grade school. I, don't, I didn't, I wasn't considering the uh, implications of the performances. <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, Spectacular Bit. He's a great horse. He's just dominating. He's kicking everybody's ass. He, he ran in a race and nobody showed up. I mean, the ultimate sign of respect, right? 
It was just different then. Someone said, well, you know, did you feel, you know, how do you feel when Woody won five Belmonts? Well, Woody won five Belmonts. It's five different horses over, over a five-year period. And some of those horses weren't so great. I mean, they just happened to win. But um, I mean, no one ever was saying Danzig Connection was an astounding horse, but he got a wet track. Creme Fresh was a really good horse, but he, he never left you with the uh, impression that uh, anything... Um, wasn't on the up and up, but um, but that's what we have here. Anyways, here to brighten up our day from the central part of the United States is the great Garlic Rob, Rob Whitlock. Hey, Chuck, how are you? Well, 2020 is almost over. <laughs> so... Like millions and millions or hundreds of millions of people or maybe billions of people, I'm hoping that next week somehow magically will be a little bit better than the last uh, 40 or so weeks that we've had that, that, that haven't been so great. Yeah, I, I can feel the paradigm shift about to happen. You were talking about Crim Fresh. Where we actually uh, are good friends with Crim Fresh's groom, the great Chris G, who's actually... Last name is Bausch, but for some reason I called him Chris G for years, and I think somebody named a horse who is Chris G. You know, it's so interesting that um, back in the day, and like we're not like 75 years old or anything, but everybody at the racetrack had names that not, you know, above, outside their own name. And um, <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of gone by the wayside, and, and you don't have those, uh, you don't seem to have as many characters as you used to, and uh, the the nicknames of, of guys has uh, has really kind of dropped off. Well, when I, I I'll tell you a good story. I was working for the chief and Sky Beauty when the uh, I believe it was it must have been a race at Belmont, so it, it must have been right after Saratoga. <laughs> well, she won a lot of races at Belmont. <laughs> I can't, but this would have been in the fall. Yeah, in the fall at Belmont, and uh, Mike Smith pulls up to, to the barn in the morning, and, and he's going around asking everybody who he should make the check to. He wanted to stake the groom, right? Which right. is another thing that hardly ever happens anymore. But uh, so he comes to me, and he said, what's the guy's name that rubs Sky Beauty? And I said, oh, Nick the Prick. <laughs> <laughs> Threw up his hands and just walked down the shed row. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we all had uh, nomenclature. Think about all the guys from the Chief, Duck Butter, Fart in the Wind. Not, not, I worked there for a year. I never knew anybody's real name. Yeah, Boone. Um, Boone. Magwood. <laughs> Magwood. <laughs> uh, Hildegard, the great Hildegard. That was actually her name. But, um, yeah, well, I mean, look at the chief. Call me, she used to love to call me the fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she never liked me. She said, you stay too clean. <laughs> she used to tell me, you stay too clean. I said, what do you want to roll around in the dirt? Ah, you, you young people, you don't know what they're doing. You don't even know how to put the you don't even know how to put the the shank on the groom on the horse. I was telling a couple of good Hildegard stories the other night to someone uh, about our rolling tack room. You know, we had a tack room that was always empty because she kept all the tack in her station wagon. She she was sure that everybody was stealing tack, and um, every time I ran a horse for Jerry Shields, he'd come to the paddock and and he'd always have ten dollars across the board for the groom. Well, if he didn't have a chance to get it to the groom, if he were tied up, it went to Hildegard. <laughs> yeah. Hildegard. Never Hildegard Never cashed a ticket. Hildegard worked for Jerkins for years, and she was a groom. 
And then he finally, um, and, and he had a, a, a big heart and a soft, he was a soft touch and he would find a place for people. He, and he would never, you know, want to fire them or, 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 you know, send them along even when he didn't need them. And Hildegard, he kind of carved out a role for her. And, um, she, she, she had, she had, she, she really, she was, was she, she really was a, uh, I mean, she knew horses. I mean, she didn't we, really, we have that know. Uh, nice New York bread that, uh, they turned out and the horse ran through the fence and got impaled and Hildegard, uh, nursed that horse back a really nice New York bread filly. I can't remember her name. Would have been 93, but well, yeah, you know, escapes me. she worked for Reggie Cornell who was a, a, a top trainer, I guess, in the 60s and into the 70s, before she would work, um, you know, for Jerkins. And it was so funny one day, he was talking to her. She was complaining about something, and, and she kept telling him how Reggie Cornell would do it. <laughs> and he finally said to her, he, uh, um, he said, you know, I've been in the Hall of Fame for 25 years. I might know a little something about a whore racehorse. And she just like you know they they just went back and forth and back and forth and and uh, yeah she, she was she, she was great. McDermott used to say about her, "Hitler's not dead. He's alive and working for Alan Jerkin." <laughs> yeah, you know, McDermott was he, he was a special case himself. Well, you came from a, a different um, venue of entertainment before you got into horse racing. Tell everyone a little bit about uh, about your. Uh, you know your your life story and and, and how you uh, wound up at, at the on the backside of a racetrack. Well, I was uh, I was going to school in New York City, and my roommate, uh, his father, uh, Steve Rose Senior. My roommate was Steve Rose. His father had produced Twelve Angry Men, and I was getting ready to go home for the summer to Ten Bar. And uh, he said, "Hey, why don't you stick around here? I'll get you a job on on this movie I'm going to work on." So I, I I stuck around, and I, I worked as a parking PA on a movie called Hello Again with Corbin Burnson and Shelley Long. And uh, I parlayed that into a little movie career. I eventually joined the IOTSE and worked on some big films, Goodfellas, the second Ghostbusters movie, When Harry Met Sally, Last Exit to Brooklyn. I worked with Alan Pakula and, and Sidney Lumet. Um, I was very lucky, you know, and that's the other thing the Chief used to always say, say about me. You always seem to fall ass backwards into good luck. And uh, that was uh, basically I had no, I had no fixins or training to be involved in the motion picture industry, but I fell into it backwards and carried me for a lot of years. Sixty-two feature films, I believe. Tell me, tell me the yeah. difference between the key grip and the gaffer. Well, the key grip is basically in charge of safety. Um, the gaffer is in charge of the lighting department. So uh, they're they're really. The jobs go hand in hand. The gaffer is in charge of the lights, and the, the grip department is in charge of securing all those lights and making sure nothing falls over on anybody's heads. You hump a lot of sandbags when you're in the grip department, and uh, you hump a lot of lights when you're in, in the uh, electric department. So the gaffer is the head electrician, and the key grip is the head grip. It's so funny that you watch a million movies and at the end of the movies, the credits come on, and and they have all these you know people's names, and mostly people you don't have any idea who they are, but, but obviously play an important role in, in getting the movie shot. But they have all these terms, these funny names, and I remember asking you, "What the hell is a gaffer? 
What the hell is a key grip? Why don't they come up with better names for those things? <laughs> I, I did a lot of craft service in, in the early stages of my career, and the craft service person basically deals with every aspect of food on the set. Um, a lot of people always assume, oh, you worked for the craft company. You must have been the cheese guy. But, um, yeah, the craft service guy. Uh, there's a lot of what, what, what the, this ob- obfuscation. Is that, a, is that the proper word? That's close um, enough. They they don't they they don't want you to know what the job is so that you you can't actually apply for it you know it's like you can't you wouldn't walk in and say oh I've got a, if you didn't know what was going on you wouldn't say hey I've got some gaffing experience <laughs> I've done a lot of gripping in my life <laughs> so yeah, uh, so my so uh, let me tell you not, I'm not I'm not going with the gripping okay. <laughs> So I, I um, there was a strike in New York City. The uh, Screen Actors Guild had no contract, so there was movie production came to a grinding halt. And I had been following uh, a horse. Of, I didn't really have much interest in horse racing, but Wayne Lucas had a horse on the Derby Trail that year, and Julie Crone uh, was riding, rode him in the bluegrass. I think the horse is called Union City or Union Avenue. Union City, yeah. Uh, um, and I was following that and kind of got interested a little bit, and there was no production going on. So I said to my girlfriend, Hollis, I said, I'm going to learn to train racehorses. And I got in the car, jacket, and I, I called. I, so I, Rusty Arnold, I think, actually trained Union Avenue. I don't think it was it was Wayne Lucas. But I, for, I, I called uh, Belmont, and they gave me Rusty Arnold's phone number, which was astounding to me. I mean, I couldn't believe they are just going to give me this trainer's number. So I call him up, and, and he says, well, I'm in Kentucky, but Peg runs the Chevro there at Belmont. Go out and see her. So I put on a jacket and a tie, and I had my resume in hand, <laughs> and I went out to Belmont. She took one look at me, and she said, mm, nah, you probably won't fit in here. I want to go around and uh, try some other barns. It was a Tuesday evening about 4 o'clock, so I started walking all the way around Belmont. And hardly any trainers were actually there in the afternoon, but... I did go by Jimmy Picus. He gave me a pair of shoes. He told me if you do get a job, you're going to need these instead of the loafers you're wearing. And um, and then I, I got in the car. I was dejected. I, I must have been to 60 barns, and nobody wanted to give me a shot. So I got in the car, and I looked up, and I said, you know, I didn't go in this. Rusty was where Todd is now, which is, I think, 30. Right. And the chief was in 31. Maybe I have those numbers. Across the street, right. But I, so I looked up and I said, you know, this is one last barn. I should go in here. I walked over and uh, Tuba and Saudi were in the office cleaning. And I said, hi, my name's Rob. And they said, the man's down the shed row. And so I walked down the shed row and there's Alan tubbing a horse at five o'clock on a Tuesday night, tubbing a horse in ice. And I said, hi, uh, uh, sir, my name is Rob Whitlock and I'd like to learn to train racehorses. And he looked at me and he said, what do you do now? And I said, well, I work in the movie movie business. Did you ever see that one with Doris Day and William Holden? <laughs> and so we talked about movies for about an hour, and he never said he would hire me. But I started, you know, after the conversation kind of waned a little bit, I walked down the shed row, and, and he yelled at me, hey, we start at 6 in the morning. And I showed up back there the next day, and, and I walked hot for three days, and then he threw me in the stalls, as green as I could be. Three days on the shank, and, and he, in the chief's mind, I was ready to rub. He put me in the first stall right by the office, though, so he could keep it on. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he loved he loved old so movies. Bad. He loved yeah. old movies. He hated the new they, movies. He, he really did. They, he he used to say, I, I'll, just, night, "I'll just watch the old ones." King, every night to King Umberto's, and all we did was talk movies. I wanted to talk horses 
you know, I really wanted to learn to train. I thought it was something that, that was interesting, and all he wanted to do was talk about film, and, and that's what we did. We edited Umberto's every night and talked about movies. Some of the greatest times in my life with that man. He, he was not only a, an outstanding horse trainer, but he was an outstanding human being. Yeah, he's, he, uh, uh, he was like a father to me. He, he affected he really so, so many people's lives in, in a positive manner, and if you didn't know him, it's just so hard to describe what he did for you. And like from the outside, he, I learned curse words there, I mean, <laughs> stuff that I had never heard. And, and he would get on you so bad. And, and, and then, you know, one, one of the tuba, I think it was, was one of the hot walkers had worked there for a long time said, you know, he likes you. And I said, he likes me. All he does is scream at me. He goes, <laughs> He goes, listen. I mean, you like, see, you see this this uh, this pirate ship here. <laughs> he goes, he, he expects something out of you. He goes, I, he doesn't expect most of these people. He expects them to be screw ups, but he thinks you're good. So, so that's why he, he's getting on you so much. But that that, that, was, that was a term that was a term that was associated with the chief's barn. It was a pirate ship. I think Bill Hirsch um, referenced that in a in an article in the Ration Forum. He called Alan Jerkins barn a pirate ship, and it was a pirate ship. Um, I mean, it was so unconventional, and, and every there were fistfights on the shed row every day. Um, you know, guys drinking at 6 o'clock in the morning. We had our own bootlegger, uh, Landauer, ran the, yeah. ran the beer venue out of the, out of the tack room. that had no tack in it. It was just <laughs> Coors of beer, dollar a pop for a, what, what, what did he like to sell? the? Um, it was a really off-cheap, fast yeah. brand of beer. But, yeah, a dollar you know, a pop and then it, 25 years ago. Yeah, and then at the at the end of the day, the chief would would have one with us, and and then the football games would start. And uh, the football games, I can't remember who wrote uh, in the racing form when the chief um, was in the was in intensive care with the pancreas the first time. Uh, somebody uh, did write in the racing form that the football games at the chief's barn rivaled that of the Kennedy family, <laughs> and that was true. I mean, I can remember playing football with. Julie Crone and Bill Mod and just everybody came from all over in the afternoon to play we, ball. We we played at, we, at, at Saratoga one day and, and and Mott was playing and Julie was playing and Julie caught the ball and ran the wrong way and he was so cheap. So <laughs> Why are you running that way? What are you doing? She's like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I just run, you know. And it's like, ah, oh, you know, this is why you screw up in the races, <laughs> you know. Oh God, uh, yeah. I, I told the story. I told the story not that long ago about. Um, about John Luke Samin and John Luke, when I was there, John Luke was was really the the main rider. I mean, he would ride when 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 we got to some of the big races, he, he would ride uh, Mike Smith, you know, Robbie Davis, and 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 when the owners kind of got on him a little bit about John Luke, but uh, he he liked John Luke, and John Luke would come and work the horses, and he he did a good job working the horses, and and he kind of did what I don't want him to do. So so one day, John Luke rides. The last race of the day at uh, at Belmar at Belmont, and I don't remember exactly what he did wrong, or at least in the chief's mind, he did wrong. But I think he led a horse up the rail and he got beat right at the wire. Now he was riding for PG Johnson; he wasn't riding for us. We didn't have a horse in the race, and we had a horse ready for him to work. And John Luke comes in, and he was kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. He comes in right after the break, it's about eight o'clock in the morning, and and uh, you know he's every you know hello everybody, how's everything? Blah, blah, blah. So Alan turns around and looks at him and goes, why the hell did you get off the rail? <laughs> you know? So John Luke doesn't know what he's talking about, right? And he's like, 
what? I don't know. You, you know, I, I didn't even work the horse. And he's, no, 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 in the last race yesterday. So John Luke's like, hold on. You're going to yell at me for PG's horses now? He goes, you yell at me for, for my horse, for your horses, but now you're going to yell at me for other people's horses? I can't take it anymore. And he turned around, he walked out, and he told me, get someone else to work the horse. So they get the horse out, and, and, and Chief's wandering on the pony, comes by, he says to me, where's John Luke? I said, he left. He goes, what do you mean he left? you got to work the horse. I said, he said, he, you know, if you're going to yell at him for, for everyone else's horses too, he just can't take it anymore. Oh, well, go get him. <laughs> so I don't know where he went to. <laughs> he left. But he had no, he, he, he didn't have that filter, you know? Like the first thing he thought of when, I'm sure he watched the race, and, and I'm sure he thought of was, wow, I can't believe John Luke, you know, let the hit the horse left-hander, let the horse up the rail, blah, 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 whatever. So as soon as he saw him, he said it. And it just was, uh, that was what was on his mind. And I was always amazed when he would do the board. We had this big, giant chalkboard, and there'd be like, I don't know, 48 horses' names on it. And he would do it by memory, all 48 horses. I mean, he, he didn't, uh, I mean, he had a chart book, but, you know, he kept that at home. But he would he would do it by memory, and every single day. And this was when he was, you know, 70 years old. Um that to me was uh, was was one of the things that, that always kind of blew me away. And he he remembered everything, everything. Not only that, he he could. One of the things that blew my mind was he could identify other. Tra- he could identify almost every horse on the back stretch at Belmont by their markings. And I just thought to myself, Wow, how can you take so much time and energy to memorize markings? And he wasn't a cl- in the claiming game. No, you know, I, I don't recall the chief ever claiming a horse when I was there, but he knew. From the legs to the nose, to, he 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 could he could tell you in the morning. He'd say, "There goes so and so," and I'd say, "Chief, how do you know that that horse is being trained by Linda Fisher? How would you know?" <laughs> he, he would he would but, pay attention to things that you wouldn't think you know you, you you didn't think he was paying attention to him, but he but he did, and and that was um, you know that that's just that was just natural that just came to him. That wasn't something that I don't I don't believe he you know taught himself to do. He, I mean, when it came to horses and and old, like you said, old movies. He he had like he rem, could remember detail. And then I remember right after, uh, you know, he 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 really didn't didn't care about anything else much in the world. Uh, his focus was was what went on at the barn, what went on in the afternoon, and and then his his dinner. Of course, he always liked to eat a nice dinner at the end of the day and. I was a lucky recipient of being sponsored for many of those dinners, uh, and then uh, and then he went home and he 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 loved Turner Classic, and that's what he did in the evening. I remember after nine eleven, he he said to me, he said, "Do you think that really happened?" I said, "Chief, of course it really happened. How, how could you think it didn't happen?" He just had no concept of the outside world. Really, uh, it was his life was that little circle of horses and and those old movies. But yeah. he was, uh, like I said, he was like a father to me. I mean, you know, um, I learned so much about life. I learned nothing about racehorses, but I learned a lot about life. Mm. I remember one time he, uh, I was carrying buckets of water over to the uh, back barn there, and I was humping two at a time, and I might have had one in my mouth. I was carrying three buckets at once, and 
I went out and I said, Chief, it was, I'd only been there a couple of weeks. I said, how am I doing? He said, you have no natural ability, but you show up. Every day. <laughs> yeah. And, that, uh, eventually, um, you know, I had to leave. Um, starting, I started out there making $75 a day. I was commuting from Hoboken. The tolls were costing me more than, uh, than I was making in a week. But I, I did. It was a great life experience. And then I spent every summer with him in Saratoga until, well, until he until he left us uh, you know i was always uh well i i felt honored indian charlie called called me in print the chief's caddy and uh that's a you know that's a that's a badge of honor yeah when i met you when i first met you <laughs> this is how you got your name people have uh, i remember you telling me that you spray garlic in the stalls and it keeps away mosquitoes and to be honest the first I thought this was just like another Alan Durkin's kind of you know loony kind of thing you know because I, I just was I just didn't believe it I remember you telling me he goes you watch I'm going to do all the stalls except for two the two ponies and you watch tomorrow morning, because in Saratoga, Saratoga is like notorious at that time of the year for, for mosquitoes. And the back barns at Saratoga on the main track are, are right by the woods. So And the auto. The auto is right below where we were. Right, there's, right, there's a lot of water. There's a lot of, you know, it, it's like, you know, prime mosquito territory. And you sprayed the barns, and you walked around, you had this spray. It looked like, uh, you, you looked like the guy out of Ghostbusters, except with garlic. And, and the barn smelled like an Italian restaurant, because, of course, there's garlic everywhere. And the next day I came in, and the, the ponies were just, like, murdered with mosquito bites. And all the other horses didn't have hardly any at all. And I said, man, this guy, this, what's your name? Rob? We're going to call you Garlic Rob. <laughs> And, and that, that was name stuck for a long time. And that you know, was, last yeah. year was the first year that I didn't do the garlic. And twenty, I think my first year doing garlic was ninety four, and it lasted until uh, the pandemic. How, how the many? Pandemic I mean, you, you had a life. you had a lot of trainers, right? At one point, uh, I would do about every year. I'd do between forty and fifty, and the other thirty that I didn't do were smart. They knew that if they were in between a couple <laughs> of my barns, they get the service for free. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, it uh, kept me going for several years, and and I actually enjoyed it. You know, I, you know, I didn't want to rub racehorses, but I enjoyed being out in the morning and and interacting with all the great people there, and just uh, you know, and I kind of enjoyed the celebrity that is associated with being Garlic Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Garlic Rob, you're not famous, but you might be considered infamous, <laughs> and they can smell you coming. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it was a, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was highly effective. Indian Charlie also he wrote, uh, "Why, why are, are the mosquitoes eating eating everyone alive in Saratoga?" And Alan Jerkins is grazing horses in a thong bathing suit every <laughs> afternoon. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it did Charlie make. Did a, did I a mean, lot of, when you, you when know, when a couple when, of good promotions. When you pulled up to the barn, you could smell the garlic. I mean, it oh, yeah. was it, it was uh, out there, but it worked. It actually worked. I mean, you talk about uh, um, a non-chemical, uh, you know, uh, treatment for something for a, 
I mean, it's just what basically what it was was just garlic and water, correct? That's all that it is, garlic and water. You're you're all you're doing is you're um, you're covering up carbon dioxide, and that's how a mosquito finds you. Mosquitoes take in ten thousand parts carbon dioxide to one part oxygen. So, um, if you're if you're you know trees and and people, I think that are are smokers. Uh, that's carbon monoxide, but. This, you know, the mosquito really works. It's highly effective, and and like I said, it was a cottage industry for twenty six, twenty seven years up there. And um, it doesn't. Most of the other tracks in North America are concrete. In Saratoga, you're like you said, you're basically in the woods. Um, so we never did it anywhere up there. Um, I, if I had been smart, I probably would have gone residential. Now you see, in every town you go to, you'll see uh, signs and advertisements for homeopathic mosquito treatment, and that's what they're using. They're using the garlic juice. A great uh, guy out in California, um, the Garlic Research Laboratory, he juices it out there. It takes 30 pounds of garlic to make a gallon of juice, and, yeah, you you, you cut it. You're supposed to cut it 100 to 1. I, I cut it on the racetrack about 25 to 1, and, and you're supposed to be able to spray every two weeks, but, you know, on the track, people want to see you every day. So... Yeah, it, it, it was a good ride for me. A good, good ride for me for a long time. You, you know, what tracks got a lot of mosquitoes. It's Canterbury, Minnesota. Oh yeah, but I don't think there's. I don't think you know the people spend money in Saratoga. I don't think people have any money in Canterbury. <laughs> well, and it's not as high profile. You don't have Mister Phipps coming to the barn every day, Canterbury. No. So, but there are a lot of mosquitoes there. Yeah. Now you, um, you a couple of years ago. How long ago? Was it that you started uh, doing the rentals for Saratoga? Uh, rentals, I think, about 12, 13 years ago. That's that long. Yeah, it's, uh, that's that's been a good ride for me as well. Actually, I was able to do that from Hot Springs last year without actually being on the ground. It's um, And I have a lot of repeat customers every year, sure. so... Um, but it's that's a that's a nice little business to be in. Sure. Um, I don't have a <clears throat> place to stay. Yeah, for people uh, that don't know... You know, during the Saratoga meet, there's just not much short-term housing for people, and you know, coming up um, from New York or coming in from Kentucky or somewhere else. So you wind up uh, a lot of people who live in Saratoga and in the immediately surrounding areas. They they uh, they rent their homes out for uh, for the meet, and it's not cheap. They're kind of the original Airbnbs, yeah. And, and this goes back. I mean, this has been going on in Saratoga for. You know, probably since the beginning of Saratoga. As, as long as, like, yeah, as, long as I remember. I, I remember when I was a little kid. This is when I first realized that the impact of Saratoga, the racetrack on Saratoga, the town, was um, you go to McDonald's, and I hate to say how, how, how cheap things were back then, but, um, you know, hamburger might be 50 cents. And then uh, the next week, when the meat's on, the hamburger's a buck and a quarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? the two menus, the summer menu. And the <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And, Same and thing I'm, with the dry cleaners. I think it, it costs about what twenty dollars to get a shirt done at Cudney's. In Saratoga, there. it's better just to buy new clothes <laughs> than get them dry cleaned. I mean, I, I don't know. I think Cudney's is finally closed. I think they they bought like you know one of the Hawaiian islands and moved out there or something. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean that, that was one of the really, um, frightening aspects of the pandemic for, you know, the city of Saratoga is 
how you know with no fans coming in and it, it's it's a such uh it's a it's a place that's thriving but it's also it's thriving because of tourism and people coming you know to Saratoga not just to stay for a week but people from the you know drive a you know uh, people that are live a few hours away coming in for a day or two or a weekend or two and then you take them people out of the equation with with the pandemic and uh it's just kind of a hard yeah. uh you know you, you just don't know how bad uh, some of these places are affected and of course you know there's there's places that are closed up i i just just down here um there's a lot of restaurants that that didn't make it and and this has been uh in south florida it's probably as open of an area as there is in the whole country and and still some places uh um weren't able to weren't able to survive but you know saratoga's a little town and like you said for man i, I paid i think i paid ten thousand dollars the last time i was there for six weeks and yeah you were one of my original customers yeah. i got you a great deal over there by marino's pizza one yes year. Like, by, yeah pizza. by by marino's pizza which probably that, cost me about way, 30 pounds restaurant in saratoga just don't mess with marino's and the roma deli um, both places you turned me on to. And I remember the first time we went to Marino's. Uh, no, the first time we went to Romadelli, there was uh, a really long line. And and I said to you, i got to tell so-and-so about it. And you said, don't tell anybody from the race <laughs> about this place. It's already crowded enough. That was the truth, those, man. Those people are great. And, yeah. and the Marino's people are great, too. And those two things I really miss about being, you know, now I'm a year-round resident in uh, Hot Springs. I, I um I no longer have my place up in Saratoga, and and well, this year was the first year that I didn't go back just for the summer. But I'm I'm a year-round resident in Hot Springs now, and uh, two things that I really miss about Saratoga: the the, the food scene, um, you know, being able to go to Marino's or go to Roma Deli and get a, an affordable, you know, I consider a meal fit for a king. I mean, I know you were addicted to the wings at Marino's for a while. I don't know if you if you've gone into a program to try to get off of that since you've been down in Florida. But, it's, not, um, it's not quite yeah. the same here. Um, and then the racing, obviously. I mean, it's the greatest racing in North America. We have the biggest purse structure in North America here in Hot Springs, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm hardly interested in going to the races here. In Saratoga, you want to be there for nine or 11 races a day. And I just, right. I mean, the one, the great, the great thing about Saratoga is that everything's close and like you're, you're down here. Okay. Say you go to Gulfstream for the races and you want to go to Joe stone crab, right? You know what a pain in the ass it is to drive to Miami beach, especially if it's not on a weekend. And then you go down there. There's no parking, and I mean, not that Saratoga's parking situation isn't great, but you can get an a, an Uber for three bucks and and go from the track to to downtown, and everything is right there, and everybody's right there. And I wouldn't want to live in that situation year round because you know you get sick of the track people, you get sick of looking at each other. But for that, you know, five, six, seven weeks, it's it's. Um, it's unique, you know. You have the harness track across the street. You have a, like you said, a million different restaurants. There's a lot of things to do. You go out by the lake. There's, it was a great place. Like I grew up there, so it was. When you're a little kid, you don't know anything but your own world. You know, right. you don't know what it's like. Um, you don't have much scope of of life because you're you're living in your little world and you're not 
generally traveling and going too many places. And and back then, I mean, we didn't have internets and things like we have now. But like growing up, like we, you know, guys that that had grew up there, we, we talk about it all the time. Like how fortunate we were to have grown up there during that time as well, before the world got to be the like it is now. And uh, you know, I, I consider it a, a privilege, and and I was amazingly lucky. I've been amazingly lucky in my life to to. Um, have come across people like Alan Jerkins and to have been able to grow up in places like Saratoga. Um, yeah, I, I, I spent, uh, I, I've at least spent one summer in Saratoga without a car and you just didn't need it. You could, you could really navigate the whole town on foot, you know, and, uh, it's, it's a, it's a great place. The real estate prices are post nine 11 have gotten, it's gotten a little bit unaffordable for a common man up in Saratoga, but, um, it's truly, uh, Main Street, USA. I mean, Disney built a section of their theme park modeled on Saratoga. So yeah, that 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 was. I I, I heard that and I was like, I just was surprised because yeah, I mean, there's no Disney horse and horse racing, and and, uh, horse racing and Disney aren't exactly like you know things you would think go hand in hand. Right, right, right. So you, I've um, got a good, I got a good Joe Stone Crab story, but I'll save it for the next appearance. It involves a snake who had Julie's book back in the day and Larry the Cooper. reservation, and the chief got there. And uh, well, go I'll ahead, go ahead and tell us. He goes to Joe Stone Crab, and uh, he's got a. Re- he, he's meeting Julie, and Snake had Julie's book. I don't know Snake's real name. I, I Larry Cooper. Larry Cooper, right? Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> the chief gets there, and he. And the maitre d' says, uh, yes, sir, how may we help you? And he says, Alan, Alan Jerkins. So the maitre d' looks at the book. He says, no, no Alan Jerkins. Said, oh, well, maybe it's Julie Crone. Uh, no, sir, no Julie Crone. Uh, could it possibly be another name? And the chief throws up his hands. And then, Well, Snake said 6 o'clock. Oh, Snake, of course. We have right this way, sir. <laughs> oh, man. You know, it's funny because he, Jerkins like to go to the same places. He liked to go places he was familiar, and he, he knew, um, you know, what, what he knew what what he liked. He uh, he knew he, where to park. He he knew that they were going to take care of him when he walked in there. And I remember the place. Remember the place. What was the place in Saratoga? Uh, the villa. What should we call it? Um, villa Villa Dest or Villa yeah, Roma? Right, right. Villa Dest. Yeah, the right. big castle outside of town. Yeah. So one time he tells me, he says, "I think the I think the owner gambles." I was like, really? Why? What did he ask you if you like new horses? He goes, no. But every time I come in here, I order the same thing, and the price is always different. I think he, I think he, he charges more when he loses at the races. <laughs> this was this, this was an actual theory uh, that uh, that he had come up with, and I don't know. He might not have been wrong, <laughs> but you know, he he loved Umberto's. He loved Stella's by Belmont, and. Stella was great. Too. He, he had his spots, you know, and, and he that that's where he liked to go. And uh, you know, people tried to get him to go to new places all the time, and every once in a while he would go. But uh, yeah, and you didn't want to show up late for dinner either. That used to really get him twisted. No, no, because uh, you know he he was going back wanted, to the barn. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, he used to. Well, I, I knew him a lot of the time. He he'd, he'd order an extra meal and take it back for the night watchman. Yeah. He you would, know, think about that. He would argue with you, and he would scream at you, and then, then I, th- I, th- I think he felt guilty a lot of times because sometimes, like I said before, he he just said what was ever was on his mind, 
I mean, he had no filter. No it filter, just came out. Exactly. And it wasn't that, that uh, I mean, a lot of times it wasn't that he was wrong. It was just the approach was a, was a little bit aggressive. And he would feel bad. And then uh, I can't tell you many times where, you know, he got mad. And later on, he, he, he you know, slipped me 50 bucks and said, hey, yeah, bring your girlfriend out for dinner or something like that. But but that was, uh, there was an inherent kindness to him. And no, he was, was a big, gruff person. And, and if you ever saw him yelling at a jockey, Oh my God! I remember wow. Gary Boulanger got off a horse one day, and his, his he had put Boulanger on because he had that uh, Michelle Bassardi was his, his agent. Michelle was really nice, and Alan just wanted to you know try to try to help her out a little bit. So he puts Boulanger on the horse, and you know how, uh, like we said before, it's a pirate ship. Those people who were working there. So Boulanger gets checked and stopped a couple times. Not I can't remember if it was his fault or just you know bad racing luck, but he comes back. And the the guys had bet on him, the groom had bet on him in the hot walker, and they start giving him hell, you know, like, what were you doing? <laughs> Why wouldn't he go outside? Now, he, he was like, you know, jockeys don't get yelled at usually by grooms and hot walkers if you don't work for, you know, you're not riding for Alan Jerkins. So he wasn't ready for that. So he comes up to me, and I'm standing there about 15 feet away and, and up the, up the, uh, up the, uh, the tunnel is, 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 is the chief. And, and he says to me, they can't talk to me like that. I was like, buddy, you, that is the least of your worries. <laughs> when you get up to that end of the tunnel, you're going to forget all about the the, the groom and hot walker yelling at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I remember um, once I I was um, I was working for Neil Howard. I I'd been up in Saratoga and uh, I worked for Mark Hennig up there, walking hots, and this was pre garlic, and this must have been about ninety. The first year of garlic might have been ninety five, so it was probably ninety four. What? Well, you'll be able when I tell you the horse, you'll know the year. So, I was working for Neil, and we went back down to Belmont, and I stayed on. I didn't have anything else going on, and uh, uh, run up the colors and won the Alabama. And uh, we were taking her over to um, to run in uh, another one of those fall um, stakes at Belmont, and, and you guys had Royal Indy. Yeah. And uh, you walked by, and, and you shook your head at me, and you said sorry. <laughs> this cocksucker, he knows something. <laughs> and so we're in the paddock, and, and they take off the halter, and I've got her halter, and, and the chief comes over to me, and he says, come on, let's go upstairs and watch. So I go up the stairs with him, and I'd never watched a race with the chief before, and, and it was a, it might have been a Saturday. It was a pretty busy day at Belmont, and just all the adulation he was getting going up the escalator was amazing, and we sat down way up high in the Belmont grandstand, and we, we watched the race, and and um, I can't remember how it played out, but Royal Indy, it was Royal Indy. Do I have the name right? Yeah, it was Royal a, Indy. It was Georgia mm-hmm. Hoffman's horse. Yes. And um, she made the, the lead at the top of the stretch, and the chief just, he got I thought he was having a heart attack. <laughs> I couldn't believe how he was yelling and slapping his knee and just riding. He was riding like those guys at the simulcast you see all the time. And he, he rode that horse all the way to the finish line. I, I thought he was having a heart attack. And, you know, um, she was she was a really super talented horse that just had so many soundness issues. Wow, she 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 won that race. I, I, what, what race must have that been? Chuck, it, it had to be in September. Yeah, um, uh, it was a big race. It was post. So what, what's the progression? The Bell Dame, maybe. I, I don't know. Probably they change everything so much now. They change the names of the races, and um, every year there there's you know. They, they, they move I, was under to serious, I, I was under serious indictment at the Neil Howard barn the next day. I remember Eric Smith accused me of, uh, of hitting the horse. Um, it took 
a few days for Neil to even talk to me. But uh, I said, you know, Neil, he's my friend, you know. I, I didn't understand why. You know, I didn't understand really. I was pretty still new in the game at that point, and I didn't understand the implications of sitting with another trainer with the with the halter of the one to five favorite in your hand. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, she she won the race. I believe it was a bell name. I'll have to go back and look it up. But man, I, I thought he was having a heart attack. I really did. I couldn't believe how he was getting into that horse all the way down the lane. It was, he he would get so was, excited about winning a race. Even even yeah. Even a race on a Thursday at Belmont, the third race, some maiden 25, you'd be so happy that the horse won. I mean, like you said, though, before, everything in his life was geared towards the horses. And I, I remember one year uh, we had a really bad Gulfstream. We, we maybe won two races, three races. And uh, we came back to Aqueduct, and we always used to come back right as they went from the inner track to the outer track. So the Florida horses naturally had an advantage. And this was when Gulfstream would run till maybe March 15th, not like they do now. Um, but the horses that trained in Florida would always have an advantage over the horses that stayed in New York and you know dealt with the weather and all winter. And uh, we were up there, and in the first two weeks, we win like nine races. And remember, this isn't like it is now where trainers have 300 horses. We had 40 horses. Or so maybe even less. Everything we run is winning. Everything we run. So somebody one day trying to convince me that we were stiffing the horses in Florida. <laughs> and I said to the guy, I said, I'll be honest with you. If if Alan Jerkins was actually stiffing the horses in Florida, he is the greatest actor of all time. Because after <laughs> every one of those races, he would come completely unglued. And he what he would come he, he like he would get so mad after the race. I remember one time we ran a horse in the uh, the Jamaica, and it was a Harborview horse, and the horse wasn't very good. And I was like when I saw the entry because he wouldn't even tell us when he was entering horses either. That was the other thing. Like we'd find out when the overnight came out, like everybody else. And oh, I, I remember the horse didn't uh, didn't they eventually shifted her to grass and Pat Day rode. No, no, no. Uh, this this horse ran in the race, and the horse ran no good, and at about seventy to one. And I guess, you know, Jimmy kind of said, he goes, you know, I don't think the chief picked that spot out. I mean, I think, you know, Mrs. Wolfson kind of, sometimes she would lean, 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 and, and he would just have to give in. Um, so we run this horse in this race, and Jimmy and I were, Jimmy was still there. He hadn't gone on his own yet. And uh, we used to kind of, you know, I'd go up for some of the races, Jimmy, you know, stay back, and vice versa. So this race, Jimmy went up to the paddock, and, and, and the horse ran no good, and, and he comes back to the barn and he's in the car and, and he and he rolls the window down and he goes he's on the rampage and i was like why is he so pissed off about you know like this horse he goes i don't know but uh, but you drew the short stick today i'm out of here <laughs> so <laughs> off he drives you know and five minutes later the chief comes back and he's mad so i'm I'm trying to hide from him because when he would get mad sometimes he would just you know you'd catch shrapnel <laughs> so like, he would tell me sometimes uh i remember he'd be mad about something and he would say chuck this barn's a mess clean it up ah, right so he'd go to the track and i'd get a couple hot walkers and they start cleaning up and then he'd come back 15 20 minutes later and he'd be like why are you guys wasting time doing that who cares about those windows get out there and put the horses in the ice and blah blah, blah. so there was always a contradiction so i'm i'm <laughs> i'm like screw this i'm gonna hide from him as much as i can so 
there was a bucket that was set up. Um, Saudi was the hot walker, and she was always prepared. And she had she'd set up the the water bucket, the, the the blanket. Everything was always right there. So he sees a bucket, and he thinks it's an empty bucket. And it's a bucket that's full of poultice. And he rears back and he kicks the bucket. Now, poultice is like, you know, it's heavy. Probably weighed 50 pounds, this bucket, right? So he kicks the bucket, and, thinking it's empty, and it's full of poultice. So, so now he's jumping around, he's hobbling around, and he's, his hat's off. He's, 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 now he's really mad, you know? And he's screaming, Chuck, I know you're here somewhere. I know you're here. He goes, why would they leave a bucket of poultice out in the middle of the yard? Nobody cares. Nobody cares about me. They they just want to spend my money and watch me have a heart attack. And they stormed Why out. Why me? Why me? You never see him doing that over at the uh, game. That was that was so good, man. It, it was, uh, uh, was at the time. You know, you were like literally hiding in, in a stall, like and, and and it wasn't just me. You know, the other groom. They were all they were all ducking too. But um, it was funny. But it you know at the time it wasn't funny if he was yelling at you. But um, Man, there was there was yeah. just so many stories that that, that uh, I mean, first started working there. Uh, I'd worked at a bunch of other race, you know, barns. I'd worked for Nick Zito. I'd worked for Tommy Skiffington. I'd worked for some smaller outfits in Saratoga, and so it, uh, I, you know, Lucas. So when I went there, it was just like so much different. Like it was just just different, and it was hard to explain, but. Uh, it was very zen. It was there was no formula, was and everybody all... fought, and that was that was the thing. Everybody fought with each other, but we all felt like we were on the same team. I mean, there was always some kind of controversy. You had hot walkers that were literally walking one or two horses, complaining. Or <laughs> <laughs> McDermott. Well, well I, I got some great. I can remember McDermott smoking in the stall while he was tubbing a horse in. Uh, he wasn't tubbing the horse in ice. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> and there was a lit cigarette. I just, uh, it was, it was an amazing place to work. I, I mean, I, I learned nothing about racehorses, but I, I learned a lot about life from Alan. And I was never lucky enough to win a race for him as a groom. I think I finished second with a Harbor View called Petitness. Uh, never won a race for him as a groom. But uh, when I, when I took out my license as an agent, which the chief encouraged me to. I said, Chief, I don't know anything about being a jocks agent. He said, it's real easy. You just do the opposite of what all the others are doing, and you'll be great at it. <laughs> and uh, and I, I followed his advice. I wasn't much of an agent. But uh, every uh, every jock I had, I think, uh, with the exception of Migliori, and, of course, I never had P-Val in New York. I had him in New Orleans. But uh, every jock I had, he gave me a shot, and I think I went a race with every jock I had. Even Chang won a race for the chief. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. he was um, he would he would give guy he would give people opportunities that no one else would, and and he would encourage he could, you. I mean, I remember when when I got offered the job working for Ken Ramsey, he told me point blank he didn't get mad. He, you know, sometimes now guys, their head assistant leaves and they they get all pissed off at him. Um, but he was like, "Listen, if it doesn't work out, you can always come back." I right. mean, you know, could you imagine some of the the big trainers these days? telling somebody that they'd be like well you know yo you're you know you're leaving me but he wanted he wanted to see you do good he really, oh, yeah he really did he, he would uh he would start you know i said he would he would watch the races when i first started training um from churchill and he said he never paid attention to churchill but he's a chuck's got one and i gotta watch the horse you know and, yeah yeah no 
he he was a great man. I I don't think we'll ever see another like him. Uh, the game is changing so much these days, and you know I, I just uh, he would have a hard time with this. He would have a real real hard time with with the way the game has gotten to be, and uh, you know the, the 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 changes that are made just to suit political purposes or to be politically correct would make him nuts because that was one thing that that really he was a practical person and he he was a logical person and if things didn't make sense he, it would drive him crazy he used to say to the grooms I, I don't know why you guys are in such a rush to get back to that room it's like a prison cell you know you you have you're in there 19 hours a day like why not just take your time and spend a little more time rubbing your horses and then making sure your your area is clean and doing a better job. And he used to ask me that all the time. Why, 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 why? I said, well, because, you know, they're, they're alcoholics. And he's like, well, they drink in the barn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was no, there was no, uh, there was no moratorium on drinking in the barn. No, I, I just, uh, I, and that blew me away too. When I, when I realized, Hey, it's okay to have a beer here at, uh, and, and, and right. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like people were like stumbling around drunk. I mean, well, once in a while, but oh, well, those guys you know, were all pro. Right. Exactly. And, uh, it was a it was it was a, a unique place, and I know sometimes people who don't who don't they don't they don't get it. You know, they're like, "Well, what was so great about it?" And it's just, eh, it's hard to explain. If you weren't there, it's hard, it's hard to explain. That's why I said it was very zen. You can't really, uh, you can't really. Uh, there's a German word word called Hintergedanke, and you can't really describe why it was such a special place and why he was such a special man to work for yeah what about you know, uh, I, I, I speaking of special 1993 when it you know i think of the of how loaded we were we had sky beauty we had missy's mirage classy mirage devil is due virginia rapids there were we had 38 stalls and two ponies and i, I think probably I, I bet 30 of them were stakes horses or, or prominent horses I, I really really got lucky when i fell in there it was it was crazy, crazy yeah. loaded. No, it, it, you know it's funny because for years he he didn't have a lot of great horses, and well, he made the most out of what he had. Yeah. I mean, think about Onion and Prove Out. I think he bought Prove Out for five thousand, right? It wasn't until he was seventy years old that he that he really started getting better bred and and you know better class of horse. Yeah, he said there were a lot of owners that would send him their retreads, but I think they did that for a reason. He told me one time, he said, the worst thing ever happened, I had this filly, and she had a bow, and, and I gave her the time off, and we brought her back, and I, and I won a couple stakes with her. And he goes, they, they did a story on me. He goes, at the time, I thought it was great. As it turns out, it was like the worst thing. I said, well, why would it be bad? He goes, because everybody thought I had this magical cure for a bow tendon, and everybody wanted to send me bow tendon horses. He goes, they weren't sending me the good horses. They were sending me the horses that, that were bowed. He goes, you know, the bow, it's a, you know, one out of ten you get lucky with. That just happened to be the one. And he goes, all of a sudden, I got a barn full of horses with bowed tendons. <laughs> he told me a story about the time uh, a guy he didn't know. This was, and this, was, this was a long time ago. This was at Jamaica, the racetrack at Jamaica, which has, of course, you know, been gone for a long, long, long time. And uh, he said... The guy came around, and he said, um, can I borrow a stall? And, and uh, I'm thinking of claiming a horse. So he said, yeah, you know, uh, no problem. We'll, we'll help you out. Just 
talked to you know the, whoever was in charge down of the shed row at that point, and he said, "Don't you know the guy claims my horse?" <laughs> <laughs> I go, what did you do? He goes, I told him I'd give him the stall. <laughs> that's a great story. I, I, that's one I never heard. You don't remember who the trainer was, do you? No, it was some guy. He, he didn't even know who the guy was. I mean, it was, and this is like, I think in the late 50s, early 60s. And, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, he, Alan Durkins at that point. He was just kind of an up and coming guy, but, uh, that's the other thing. There's 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 like twelve million stories out there, and and it's a shame that no one ever really, and it, it, a book would have never done it justice. And part of the problem was that the context of yeah, you and I laugh about some things because we know the people, we know the individuals. It's not quite as funny when you just don't know anybody in in, in a story. But um, but there was he was always kind of hesitant to talk negative about people that you know were alive and he, he you know was very careful of not embarrassing people um he rooted for almost everybody like he didn't have a lot of people who he just didn't like and i thought that was one of the things that um surprised me because he's a competitive guy and he would get mad at losing he, he wasn't happy when he lost he was upset but he didn't. Um, he didn't begrudge the person that beat him. He he didn't. You know, he wouldn't be mad at them. He he and he, he would root for. He would. I remember asking him one time about somebody. I said, well, "You know, why are you root for that guy? Oh, that guy gets up in the morning and he works hard and blah blah blah." I was like, "Yeah, that guy's a kind of a jerk." He goes, eh, "So am I." <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's yeah, I, I something that. that uh, say a cross word about anybody. You know, yeah. I mean he. He said a lot of crosswords about us, but, uh, you know, like you said, he, he was going to be mad, but uh, you'd be at dinner with him 10 minutes later. Yeah, it wasn't, it, w- it wasn't personal. It was just, and that's the thing, no filter. And that, and that would, he, he would struggle these days um, with microphones all over the place, with cameras all over the place, with, with uh, because he, he, he was just very willing to say what was on his mind. He, and, he hated it. I remember early on I was... When I first got there, he was driving me to the train one night to go back to Hoboken, and and he said, uh, I said to him, Chief, you know, I'd, I'd really like to make a documentary about you. And he said, who would be interested in that? Maybe my family, but nobody else would care. You know, he was so humble and, and just, I, I mean, out, you know, I, don't, I, I, I try to, any anytime I'm talking with, a, with a, somebody that's strange to the track about uh, Alan and I always Wikipedia them, Alan, so that they can see what a man he was. But yeah, if you if you didn't uh, if you weren't on the inside, maybe it, it wouldn't wouldn't seem like it would be an interesting uh, topic or or person to. But he was he was just a, he was well, the, an amazing man. Yeah, his whole story of you know his father was was had a um, a livery stable and, and and he was you know learned from a young young age how, how to ride on his own and. You, know, you, you look at him and you look at his stature and you can't believe it, but he actually rode steeplechase horses for a yeah. brief time, a very yeah. brief time. Um, I've encouraged Sean, Sean Clancy. I've been after him for about 20 years. I said, I always say to him every year, let's sit down and write a script. You know, it would be a, it would be a fabulous feature film, I think. But um, I think it, I'd, I'd much rather watch that story than the Seabiscuit story, maybe because I was connected. But um, 
he his his story, like you said, from from his. I mean, he'd tell the stories about going around with his fathers when he was a kid, and and uh, I mean, <clears throat> the Rose gang, people that came to the riding. I mean, he just had all these great stories and. And going around with his dad to, you know, his dad was, a, I think, a little bit of a gambler. He used to go to the, the what I would call a newspaper stand. I think the chief called them candy stores. And his dad would be making wagers. And, yeah, it, um, he, he, you know, he was, going. Uh, like, he, like you said, he was so humble. And, and in some in some ways, he was insecure. He, I can't remember how many times I heard him say, Chuck, have they ever kicked anyone out of the Hall of Fame? I'm so bad now. I can't. I, I shouldn't even be. I, they shouldn't even let me go in that place. It's, it's an embarrassment. I can't believe how bad I. The, the best was the day he came in. On a, it was like a Tuesday. It was in the fall, and he came in on a dark day and, and was just like despondent. And and I just figured, you know, maybe he got in a fight with Liz, his wife, and about something because they were always kind of at each other. And um, he just didn't want to talk, and he was just like miserable. And I mean, I, I didn't even finish my lunch. He'd come in way earlier than he usually did, and and uh, he had forgotten to enter wagon limit in in an allowance race that he was going to use as a prep for the Jockey Club Gold Cup. Now, wagon limit had just run in like the Woodward or something, and, and kind of got dusted. I mean, he had had some problems, and he missed some time, and, and he was a talented horse, but but um. I mean, we didn't think he was, like, at least I didn't think he was a, a real contender for the Gold Cup, you know. But so I was like, well, why didn't you tell me? Ah. So well, why don't we just work him? The horse works fast. I mean, he'll he'll work. And he's like, all right, get Davis to come over here and we'll work him uh, Thursday. Okay, so the, we worked him Thursday. And I swear to you, I think he worked him like a mile in like 136, 137, some you know, really fast time. And, of course, then he goes out and he wins the race at 50 to 1 or whatever we were. But so he paid forty. He paid forty. I believe he paid. I, well, I got a good story about that too. I'll get to. I'll let you finish up. But I, I for some reason, forty three dollars. I, I know it was a five horse field. It was skip away. Skip away, gentlemen. Gentlemen. Yeah, and skip Black away, and gentlemen went like ridiculous fractions. They went one like of my forty four and changed. Just kind of <clears throat> crazy, uh, you know, it was fractions. A muddy track. Real. It was a really, really heavy muddy track. Yeah. I was in Wichita, Kansas. I, I was out visiting my dad, and I was at the Greyhound Park in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, I bet 20 to win on Wagon Limit. I wheeled him in the Exacta. I think I had $10 Exactas Wagon Limit with every other, with all the other four horses. And um, I had him connected. I, I want to say I had him in a try, but I can't believe that they were offering a try in a five-horse field back then. But anyway, I you know, he won, and, and I was ecstatic. I was going to the window to cash, and... Um, the guy, the guy put in the first ticket and boom, it popped up 20 to win $430. And I, and I, I was already counting my money. I, I, I was, you know, back in, in those days, I was a kid and I, I was going to walk out of there with two, three grand. And, and he put the second ticket in the machine and, and the clerk had, had let the, uh, the mutual machine revert back to the original track. So I had all races on Hawthorne. <laughs> I cast my winning ticket, but my exactas oh, were no good. My my other gimmick, whatever I had, was no good. And yeah, I I, I remember I told, told you the story after it happened, and you said in New York they would have gone over the counter and strangled the guy. Yeah, at at the end of the day, it was late, and um, and I went in the room. He was in the office sitting there, and I walked in. It was just seeing him, and I said, you know, 
It's a good thing you didn't fuck that up and and, and enter in that stupid allowance race. <laughs> and he just laughed and laughed, you know, <laughs> like nobody else even had any idea. That, like he, you know, the, uh, I think Mike Kelly was Robbie Davis's agent at the time, and he he didn't even know that he was planning on going in the race. He goes, Chuck, if he had told me, I would have I, I would have reminded him, but he never told me. Right. I was right. like, yeah, that's a, that that's the way he did it. He would just you know come up with ideas and. Uh, you know, it would it would it would be in the back of his head, and 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 he wouldn't kind of you know say anything, and then it would just be, be there. And uh, but that was that was a crazy day. I mean, that horse. Uh, yeah, I've got a I've got a picture of him coming down the lane on my Facebook page. It's uh, in my. If you click on my Facebook page, you know you get the little section where you got six photos, and and uh, one of the photos there, and it always has been since I got a Facebook account, a picture of Wagon Limit coming down the stretch in the Gold Cup. And I love, and people, all, we always, uh, I remember I was at Stidham's one night and at the fairgrounds, and uh, we were having a, a debate about the best race call of all time. And I said, listen to, listen to, um, who, I can't remember the, not Larry Colmas, prior to Larry Colmas. Tom Durkin. Durkin. I said, listen to Durkin's call in the, in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. I I, I I don't maybe it was just that race was special to me, but I, I love to listen to that race call. There, skip away, gentlemen, wagon limit. I, I wish I could remember the other two horses that were in there, but uh, yeah, that was that that could have been a great day at the windows for me. But it turned out I that's a great lesson to to anybody that goes to make a bet at the track. Always check your tickets before you walk away from the window. <laughs> Go, going to the track, it seems as. as uh doesn't happen very often no one no one actually goes to the track there's so few tracks that are open and or have people there that uh it's it's kind of changed the whole it kind of changed the whole paradigm i mean but um oh, you get here in hot springs we get we get a good crowd on the weekends you'll you'll catch twenty thirty thousand people on some big weekends here but yeah yeah for the most part you go Oak Lawn still gets crowds. Keeneland still gets crowds. Churchill on the big days gets crowds. Gulfstream in the summer or in the winter time on Saturdays in the big races gets crowds. Saratoga gets crowds. Del Mar, uh, Mammoth, you know, on, on on Haskell Day at least. But uh, you know, with the pandemic and so few, it, it, it's honestly I hate it. I, I hate the fact that um, there's so many guys that that are friends of mine that. We were racetrack friends, you know. Most of the time, you you just saw them mostly at the racetrack, but uh, you know you ha- you haven't seen them in, in a long time. And uh, and and when you do go to the track, and like Gulfstream has it, where it's it's limited to owners and and uh, you know VIPs, I guess. And it's just a different, not very fun experience, I guess. It's it's just there's so few people there, and there's and it's nothing against them. It's it's just not, you know, it just isn't what you're used to, I guess, as, as the the case. Because you're gonna know, race racing, going to the races. That's there's always a, been a social aspect to it. You know, just like going to a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game, where yeah, a lot of times you can see probably better on TV. You can get a better angle. You know, you don't have the hassle of parking and all the other stuff, but. There's also nothing quite like the feeling of being in a crowd of people that are all excited about the same thing. And, you know, racing every 30 minutes, everybody was paying attention. Every 30 minutes there was a race and everybody's eyes were on that race. And, and uh, 
you know, w- without that, with that, you know, fanless racing is uh, works fine on TV, but but when you're there, it's just not uh, it's it's not even close. Yeah, one of the greatest things in the world is to go to Saratoga, get a picnic table, get two picnic tables, invite about ten or fifteen of your best friends, and sit right there at the rail all day and just yeah, glorious way to spend an afternoon. Now, what about uh, what about the chronicles of of you and and Mr. Valenzuela, Pival? Oh, Pival. Well, you know, I retired Pival. I I think I re- the two best jockeys I ever handled would be Migliori and Pival, and I, I believe I retired both of them. Um, <laughs> You're like the closer. Which says, of, <laughs> yeah, which says a lot about my aging abilities. But yeah, I had uh, Pival and. And at the fairgrounds, the last uh, the last races he rode, and um, man, he was a carnival. I, I, I remember I, I we did real well. I, I think uh, I went about twenty two races in a pretty shortened meet because he he hurt his knee and had to leave early, or or that was the story he gave me anyway. But yeah, he was uh, man. He could light up a room. You you'd be out with him, and I remember one time I went went to dinner with. At a really nice Italian restaurant there on Carrollton and near the fairgrounds, and it was me, Billy Gallon, Jose Raquelme, and Pival, and I was doing good. You know, I, we, we were making money, so I picked up the tab. It was about a seven hundred dollar check, and waiter brought me the tab. I paid it out, and um, get get up and get ready to leave. And the the bartender or the bartender comes back to me and he says, "Hey." You got a second check. I said, what do you mean I got a second check? I just, it was $700. He goes, no, that, the guy down there at the end of the bar, he's been buying champagne and wine for those women for about <laughs> two hours now. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was amazing. Um, he, he was, uh, <clears throat> well, I, I, haven't, I haven't been able to find him in the last couple of years. I'd like to check in with him and see how he's doing. But, man, he could, uh, he could light up a room, and, and you were never, you know, Never any any problem. Uh, if you wanted to go out and, and meet some some of the uh, fairer sex, you wanted to go with Pival because he'd uh, he'd have every woman in the in the joint over surrounding him, listening to his stories. And wow, he was uh, he was a lot of fun to be around. A lot of work, to, a lot of work involved with handling Pival's business because you basically had to not only work for him in the morning, but you had to babysit all afternoon and and into the evening. I, I um. I, I was uh, again. It was it was a very lucky thing that I that he decided to choose me. <clears throat> Basically, a very um, you know I was uh, not uh, the most successful agent in the world. I never really had top riders except maybe uh, for Migliori and um, uh, Matt Musiker. Uh, Give me a little bit of a push with Pival, and forever thankful to Matt. Matt's done a lot of great things for me over the years, and really great great person and, and a great agent and, and he got he got he called up Pival and he said, Listen, this kid's hungry and he'll work hard for you and uh and I picked Pival up at the airport and yeah, we we were going gangbusters there for a while but uh, he decided he wanted to get out of New Orleans and, and go back to California so that uh but that was a great experience and, and um like I said he was uh he was just an amazing I was drinking back then, I'm sober now but <clears throat> to go out drinking Pival was an adventure. Oh, what, what an adventure. And especially in New Orleans. You know, I, I can remember a couple nights where, where we went straight from Powell's Lounge to the track to work horses. Pival was... He could run all night. I'm still mad at him because he, he came off the rail and the Bing Crosby 
and cost me the grade one win. And after the race, he came back and he had that white look on his face, like. And I just looked at him. I shook his head, and he's like, "I screwed it up." It's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> he um he told me a story about riding for Paulson in the Breeders' Cup. Uh, I believe it was the year of. Might have been a Rossi. I can't remember for sure, but he he was riding uh, three for for um for Mister Paulson, and Mister Paulson told him, "Pat, if you win all three, I'm buying you a Bentley. You win two, you're getting a Mercedes. You win one, and I'm taking it to the Ford dealership." Well, Pival gets on the phone with the local Ford dealership and calls him up. He's like, "What's the nicest car you got?" <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, he, he went one that day, so I can't remember. It wasn't the, the Arazi year. It, uh, I can't remember the horse that uh, that he won on. But yeah, he, he'd already called the Ford dealership <laughs> and lined it up. He knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, he, I believe he told me he ended up getting a, a replica of the kit car from, uh, what was that great TV show with the oh, guy who could... Yeah. Uh, you know the show I'm talking about, but... The car's name was Kit, and yeah. I think they had a, a replica. Wasn't that, that wasn't that uh, Hasselhoff? Wasn't he the guy in that? Yeah, show? David Hasselhoff. So I guess Night Rider. I guess Paulson takes, Paulson takes him to the dealership, and <laughs> Pival already knew the car. He had to pull out the Kit car. <laughs> oh man! You know he he was for a certain type of horse, man. That guy he he was as good as anybody. You know, a, a horse that needed to be aggressively handled and. Uh, he was he was he was good. God, he was good. But uh... yeah, he um, he he. Well, he was a great gate rider, and and um, I remember we had a. Uh, it was uh, who was the girl who rode Larry Jones' horse a few years ago and won the big races for him. Rosie Napravnik. What was her name? Rosie Napravnik. No, no, not Napravnik. After Napravnik. Um, Larry was riding her a lot. I remember, but she, I believe she was an apprentice at fairgrounds one year and I used to let her go to the lead and he said, I, I don't mind babysitting her. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of, one of a kind and God, uh, just he, think he of, uh, if he had been able to keep himself on, on a straight line for a little bit, a little bit longer. He won like 11 Breeders' Cup races in like five years. Yeah. I mean, he was like the, the, for a while, he was like in the top five Breeders' Cup um, riding winners, and he hadn't ridden in, in, in a Breeders' Cup in like seventeen years. It was kind of nuts. Yeah. I'm forever indebted to him. He took me to my first AA meeting. Well, that's a good thing. Imagine that your introduction to AA. <laughs> yeah, that's really that's a true story. <laughs> well, he knew where to find the meetings. He just had a hard time keep <laughs> going to them. <laughs> yeah, oh what, man, what, what a great time that was. I miss New Orleans a lot, but um, I'm okay here in Hot Springs. So I, I miss the food in New Orleans. I, I went on oh, the, man. the last year I was there. I went on the Neil Pesson food tour. He, got, he brought oh, me. That's to, a good tour to be on. He brought too. me to every single hole in the wall place. Past, oh. that past Manali's, the place with oh, the, man. the great. Um, uh, they're known for their uh, what do they call it? The barbecue fried. Uh, Oysters. Uh, I can't remember what what they're known for, but yeah, Neil really knows the the food circuit in New Orleans. And so I got up to two thirty one down for a couple of years in New Orleans. I I ballooned from two hundred to two thirty one was my fighting weight the last year I was there. You find excuses to eat in New Orleans. I mean, I used to be like a white breakfast, 
skip lunch, have dinner kind of guy. And uh, in New Orleans, you find a reason to eat about five times a day. I'm starving, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a lot of good food talk. We got we worked in Marinos, Roma Del. No, come on! I mean, I'm dying now. It's just so disappointing. I'm not going to be able to go to any of those places tonight. I'm going to wind up at like Wawa and get a sandwich. There you go. You've always had an an affinity for Wawa. I don't know. uh, I like Wawa. A lot of Wawa. (laughs) You know, I like Wawa. Wawa's food is is passable for like gas station food, and they have everything there. You know, you don't have to go to a bunch of places, and it's easy to get in and out of. You know know how it is down in South Florida We're going to a Publix The parking lots are like war zones Because you have You know, the people With the the, the jalopies that don't mind Crashing into you You have the people that are old that can't see where they're going And I don't know what it is But I swear to God, I was just thinking this today I think they make parking lots smaller These days I really do. Like they they build these 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 places and they build the parking lots where you can't bar- you, you can barely get around in them and it's like man, like you park in this parking lots and and you're in you know you're within your 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 lane you know and you get out and and like I have a hard time you know opening the door because the they're they're just uh, I don't know someone needs to investigate this. It's like it's kind of like uh, if you want to look skinny, uh, you need to uh, stand next to a fat pony. I think that's like the reverse architecture there. You make the parking lot small and you'll always look crowded. I know one thing. I don't, it's hard. The, the pandemic has been tough on my, my weight. I, can't, I don't think I, I'd, I'd have to stand next to a Clydesdale to look relatively skinny. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not Dale Romans ish yet, but, but it's, it's, you know, I gotta, I gotta go on a little bit of a, a, a weight loss uh, program of some sort. But, the gyms are are closed in Florida. Is that uh, that's what's keeping you back? There's, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't investigated that yet. So <laughs> no, no tanning, no working out. No, no, I don't tan. Well, I burn. So <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you, Chuck. I really appreciate you having me on. It's a uh, it's an honor, and I hope a lot of people get a chance to listen to this. You know, you could really. You should really line up about 10 people from Allen's Barn and just have a podcast of all Allen's stories. You know, be a I, I, I have been, been, that's been on the agenda for a while. I had Ralph throw on one day and he told a bunch of great stories and a couple of them I'd never heard. And, and I said, you know, it'd be great if we had, uh, we had some people on and, and, um, you know, just, just had like an Alan Jerkins show people tell stories because I'm sure there's millions of stories, you know, uh, Jack Shelley would be good and, Jack, Leah yeah. would be good. Um, Jimmy, of course, would be great if we can get him to talk. The hardest part about Jimmy is getting him to, getting him started. But uh, maybe I'm gonna give him a, get him a, a, a pre race or something. But uh, yeah, I I, I want to do that. That would be a. I think that would be a fun show. Yeah. So certainly we'll, we'll you'll be in the mix for that. And uh, oh, yeah, um, when I, when I get it uh, when I get it together. Uh, the, uh, I, I got a big book right in front of me that I've been working on today about planning shows for the future and getting people lined up and and and, uh, and that is one that uh, that I want to do before the winter is over before uh, you know gets into the triple crown season and everybody gets obsessed with with that so so we'll definitely uh, give you a ring back and uh, I appreciate it and you know if you if you make it to Hot Springs over the winter 
the guest bedroom's always open. Nobody well, else wants to come visit me, so it's always open. I'll be honest. <laughs> the chances of me going to Arkansas in the winter are like uh, maybe t- maybe one million to one. <laughs> From, I mean, Arkansas is a funny place. I, I If I, I didn't land the most beautiful woman in the world, I don't know if I would have stuck around here. It's, uh, it's a pretty... It's a pretty... And you've got to pick your spots in Hot Springs. Yeah, I'm, uh, maybe next year. Maybe next year. But uh, again, thank you, Mr. Garlic Rob, Rob Whitlock, for, for joining us today. And, and uh, we appreciate you uh, you giving us an, an hour. Actually, we were scheduled for an hour. We went an hour and a half. So we uh, we went overtime. But that's uh, the last show of the year, so hey, you know we'll throw it all out there. Again, I want to thank everybody who's listened, everybody who's come on the show, everybody who's uh, supported us. Um, I want to thank Casey. I want to thank uh, Barry, uh, Jason, um, and, and everyone that's downloaded the show. Uh, really appreciate it, and, and uh, the, the feedback's been great. And next year, we'll, uh, we'll try to do a little bit more. All right. Thank you, and uh, good night. Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast.